everybody. Welcome to Curly Girlies Cracking the Kid Code with Atara and Grace. I am Atara, founder of the Curly Girl Movement, author of the Curly Girly book series, and owner of curlygirly.com, spelled with two E's at the end of curly and two E's at the end of girly so you can find us. And I am here with my amazing co-host and good friend, Grace Cross. Hi, Grace. How are you? Hi, Atara. I'm doing great. How are you? Doing well. Um, That's great. Hi, everyone. I'm Grace Cross. I'm owner of The Baby Spot, the only global parenting magazine. And you can find me at thebabyspot.ca. Now, we have an inspiring guest with us today that I'm very excited about. Atara, who do we have? Grace, I too am so excited to welcome Zoe Fishman to our podcast today. Zoe Fishman is both a best selling and critically acclaimed author. Most recently, Zoe's book, Invisible as Air, was published in September 2019. Zoe's books have been translated into multiple languages. She is the recipient of several awards and has been featured and profiled in many prominent publications. Very recently, Zoe wrote a beautiful essay for the Modern Love column in the New York Times Sunday Style section. Zoe worked in the New York publishing industry for both Random House and Simon & Schuster before moving to Atlanta in August 2011. She is both the executive director and an instructor at the Decatur Writing Studio. Zoe is also an instructor in the Emory Continuing Education Program. Most important, Zoe is a mom to two young boys. All this while working on her next novel. Zoe, we are so happy to have you with us chatting today. Welcome to Curly Girlies Podcast. How are you? I'm good. I'm honored to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So I want to give like a little bit of a backstory to um, how we got to each other. So you wrote um, a really beautiful piece in the New York Times Modern Love column called, um, you titled it The Subway Crush Who Crushed Me. Um, I have to say, I read it, when I read it initially, I read it um, twice, and then I reread it again last night. And really, each time I read it, it brings tears to my eyes. It's just, it's beautifully written, and the sentiments are so really unusually beautiful in the sense that, you know, lots of people can get married, right? But getting married to your crush, who then becomes your soulmate, and then who you also lose, it's just... It's just such a, a crazy thing to happen. So I don't want to tell the story for you, but um, tell us a little bit about the backdrop to that column. Sure. I um, So I, right after I finished college, I moved to New York. I, was the, I went to college at Boston University, and I moved to New York in 1998. I was there for 13 years. Mm-hmm. And for a large portion of that time, I was very much single. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> like lots of New Yorkers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was like pretty much given up. Um, but I thought, oh, I'll just, you know, I'll have some nice clothes. I'll travel a lot. I don't need to get married. Love right, right. Um, and the whole time, you know, I had, uh, I had a coworker who was dating this man named Renan. Um, they were dating casually and I had met him at a party and I just thought he had the most amazing face uh-huh. and occasionally I would start to see him. They didn't work out. Okay. I would start to see him on the F train. That was my train, uh-huh. um, from Brooklyn in the mornings. Um, not every day, but he became my subway crush. Mm-hmm. Um, oh. to my friends, we kind of, you know, you, you always have a name for a guy that's not yeah. the name. <laughs> Um, and finally one day, one fateful Saturday, um, I actually saw him on the train 
with my old coworker who I was still, you know, friends with, uh, and her then husband, and we were finally introduced to each other. And so, how many years later was this? Since oh my gosh, yeah. it was probably it was like two thousand, probably six. Wow. Oh my god. So seeing him all the time, but not like having a name to that face or anything. Right. Like I knew his, I knew his name, and I, but I, my idea of him was completely different than who he actually was. Uh-huh. I thought that he was this. Israeli Lothario, um, <laughs> and he could not have been a more, he couldn't have been a warmer, kinder, goofier, you know, and still sexy person. But wow. I thought I just could never get up the courage to say hello to him because I, I, you know, I had guys and I was dating in the background, right. um, but I didn't, I kind of wanted that one guy on the pedestal. It was better to keep the dream alive than destroy it. Right. Sometimes when you talk to people, you find out they're not who you thought they were. So. Yeah, and then I would have to change cars. And the time. <laughs> That's right. Well, it was a whole thing. I just wasn't in the mood. That is such a, an amazing intro. So then tell us how your love story began. Like, <sighs> um, So we met and it it wasn't a fairy tale in the beginning. I mean, he, again, I had spent so many years imagining he was somebody who he wasn't. Right. Right. And he had, you know, had seen me too on the train. It's very funny because I would, when I would see him, I would try my very best to appear approachable, mm-hmm. you know, but <laughs> he said, you know, you never, you always had severe bitch face and talk to you. But it was also, you know, it's the morning commute, but I was trying my best. It just never, I never um, translated. Um, and so it took, he had been dating someone prior to me. He had to sort of find his way out of that. Right. Um, he was a very thoughtful guy. Um, he overthought a lot. Um, and it took a, we started dating right away, but I don't, I think it was probably like four months later that we became you know, very serious. Um, and after that, it was just a straight trajectory to engagement and marriage. Mm-hmm. It was pretty wild. Yeah. Wow. What changed your mind? Like, did, was there a moment where you said, Hey, I could actually get married or was it gradual? <laughs> I think that I remember when my best, I was really the, the last, one of the last of my friends to get married. I was 30 when I met Renan. Okay. And I remember asking my best friend, um, who had gotten married, like, how do you not get tired of him? Right. <laughs> or don't you want to get out of there? <laughs> you know, for like four days in a row. She said, I just, I'd rather be with him than without him. Right. And that's how I felt with Renan. He just made everything better. Wow. And he encouraged me to really, truly be myself. And I had never been, and I'd been, you know, uh, I've been with my fair share of men, right. but I, I can't remember one of them ever saying to me or encouraging me, you know, not to have that drink and really talk about what was bothering me. <laughs> and, um, yes. Yeah. And he, Renan did that. That's who Renan was. So he really touched something in your soul, it sounds like. Oh, yeah. And he was so, he was such an optimistic um loving person open to everything and experience and I tend to be closed off and cynical and sarcastic 
and we balanced each other out. Um, yeah. yeah, it was it was lovely. So t- so fast forward because unfortunately there's a, a you know there's not an end. So I don't want to say there's a tragic end, but there was at least a tragic end to the relationship. So fast forward that for us a bit. Um, so we got married in 2009. Um, we had two beautiful sons. Eventually, you know, he established himself here. Right. Um, I established myself here. Uh, we bought our first home in Decatur. And then um, in 2017, in June, he, mm-hmm. I mean, he really was the healthiest guy. It's no exaggeration. He was... Right, right. Well, I saw a picture of him. He really does look quite, you know, he looked robust. Oh, robust and smiling and yes. never sick. And right. um, he left for work one day and suffered an AVM brain aneurysm. Wow. Oh my um, yeah. And went into a coma. Was in a coma for a week. And um, very, very lucky that we had a will. Yes. And that was all him. That was, thank God, that right. was all him. And he had named me his health, um, you know, director. Right. And um, together as a family, we decided to disconnect him from the machines. And he passed away an hour later. And that was within one week in June of 2017. He died on June 9th. Wow. So I, oh, that's a June. date that I feel like there's a before and an after, right? Am I hearing that? Uh, like- yeah. Yeah. So now you have your book is coming out at this time when uh, you've lost your husband and you're just juggling so much. You know what I mean? And uh, but you end up publishing this book and um, persevering and uh, along the way teaching your beautiful uh, global audience. I think it's fair to say uh, so many things through the way you write Thank you so much. No, you're welcome. Because one thing about Zoe, if uh, you're unlucky enough not to have read one of her books yet, is that she has a lot of heart. Like every every page is a piece of her. And um, not only have we read the book, but we've also read what the audience says. And they say that they can't put your books down. And I believe because there's a lot of soul in what you're writing. It's true, Atara, isn't it true? Oh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, your recent book, Invisible as Air, um, tell us a little bit about that, because you you tell the story of a woman who lost a child. So you're talking about loss again. You know, Tolstoy has this great, beautiful quote in his novel, Anna Karenina. I don't know if I'll quote it exactly, but he says something like, you know, happy families are all alike, but every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. And I've always wondered, though, if that is actually true, like unhappiness, grief, has so many similarities, so many stages that are shared by everyone who feels them. Um, so I'm wondering if you agree with Tolstoy's statement, is, is, is happiness really what's different and unhappiness more similar? I think that in my experience, I'm going to have to agree with Tolstoy in okay. that, <laughs> in that um, Unhappiness is, look, as an artist, as a writer, as, a, as an observer of the world, it's just more interesting, right? Right. <laughs> to put on the page yes. or to experience unhappiness are, unfortunately, or fortunately sometimes, you know, you're 
changes, your reactions to yeah. certain predicaments change. Um, happiness is a wonderful, wonderful, I mean, God willing, we all experience on a real visceral level in our yeah. lives. Um, but unhappiness changes you in a, in a very different defining way. And I think that, you know, if I've learned anything about grief at this point, like, you know, I guess I've learned quite a lot, um, is that every, even though, you know, you, you do have this horrible loss in common with other grievers, everyone's path is completely different. Oh, um, yes. Yeah, and the way that people deal with loss <laughs> is completely different depending on the person's character. Yes, I think that's true. I think that people process it very differently. And depending on the support system that they have, yes, I think, right? That's a big, that's a big deal to how, how the grief um, develops through its various stages that it needs to go through, right? I, I imagine, right. right, you went through various stages. I mean, were those early days after, after Ronan's death, were they just a blur or do you vividly remember them? I remember them. Um, I don't, I look, I look back on them now and think, how did I make it? Um, I was and continue to be blessed by, so because I didn't meet Renan until I was 30, I had the tremendous opportunity to make incredible girlfriends. And I'm talking about like ride or die until, you know, with me through terrible decisions, good decisions, triumphs, failures, and we all supported each other and and watched each other grow. And when this happened, you know, everybody was completely shaken. This was the first person in our age who had died. When I was only 44, uh, I was 40. Yeah. Yeah. And they all came down and took care of the boys while I did, you know, went to the funeral home, tried to figure out Shiva, tried to figure out my, you know, I have a friend who's a lawyer who sat me down and said, hey, Zoe, I know you don't want to talk about this, but these are the things you have to do and you have to do them now in terms of, you know, social security office, unraveling his life. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. And for an entire year, uh, one of those friends visited every month. Wow. Yeah, it's incredible. It's inc- I had a community here um, that started a meal. I don't think I cooked for seven months. I probably didn't eat for seven months either. <laughs> so yeah, it's just uh, any passion you have is just completely It's just gone. Things yeah. that you took pleasure in are, are no longer pleasurable. Oh, you're just trying to get through the day you're trying to be strong for your kids you're trying to I mean I I continue to be I look at my boys and my heart my heart will always break for them that they were robbed of their father and they're and this is a life that has no resemblance to mine I had a very involved father right yes Uh, and so it's hard for I can't believe I was so, I just was so naive. It never occurred to me that my, the life of my family would be so different from the one that I grew up in. That's right. And you know, Atara, I'm sure you agree. And something special about you, Zoe, it seems, is that through your grieving process, um, you took the opportunity to help others through what I always call your art, but 
through your writing. And so even in that time, you're still giving back to the audience and community. And that's probably why you're one of the reasons why you're a best-selling author and teacher. So, oh no, you're welcome. It's very true. And so now, um, you're also, uh, an authority with being um, a single parent uh, for those who have lost their spouse, but also for those who find themselves in other predicaments as well. So can you tell us um, some top advice that you would give other single parents who just feel like, oh, this is the this is the end. I don't know what to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it's funny. I was just telling Atara this morning this is just an example of single yes. parenthood. <laughs> yes. So on Thursday, you know, the kids were out of school for an interminable amount of time. And we yeah. didn't, we didn't yes. travel. <laughs> we did not travel anywhere this year, which, and it was mostly tolerable. We had a good time. Um, okay. My kids, <laughs> kids, of course, both had strep and then they oh, had no. cold, And then there's always you know, something. <laughs> there's always something and you're soldiering through it and you're doing the best you can. And so on Thursday, for some reason, I was without them. Went to the grocery store and I came home, and I was overcome by this tremendous heat. Oh, so much, so much so that I had to like strip myself of my sweatshirt and just kind of sit at the kitchen counter. Right, as sweat was like flowing out of the top of my head, and I thought, "Oh my God, this is my first flash. This is early. Oh, this yes. is terrible." But meanwhile, I was in the beginning throes of the flu. Oh, no! (laughs) Sweetheart. It wasn't until yesterday when my friend said, hey, Zoe, maybe you have flu. And I said, oh, that's what this is. Oh, that's a good one. Oh, my goodness. That's single parenting in a nutshell. Yeah. What better example? (laughs) ridiculous ridiculous i just was like oh my god so i why am i sweating (laughs) (laughs) right you're just catching your kid's sickness which is just normal par for the course (laughs) or working on your next novel what is do you have a sense of what that's going to be about i do it's um it it's it's about um a man in his 80s and a woman in her 20s in new york city and they are Shiva crashers. Oh, like the wedding crashers. Exactly. But they're both doing it for very different reasons. Oh. And they become unlikely allies. And I think it's primarily about dysfunction. You know, I, I love to write about families. I love to write about dysfunction within family. Right. Um, and it's, it's, so there are a lot of secondary characters that really, you know, are going to play into who these two people are. Um, but yeah, it's been hard to, uh, concentrate like I usually do with this book. I think because my promotion of invisible there, as well as the opportunities that have come my way, such as modern love, which was, you know, an incredible gift and honor. I still can't believe that I spoke to Dan Jones on the phone. Yeah, I want to hear about that. I want to, I want to understand, like, how did that come to be? Because I know, I think someone told me they get, I think, 11,000 submissions um, a year, and they only can pick 52, right? Because <laughs> that they do one a week. So how did this come to fruition? So I, you know, I had written a lot of essays. Um, I was more than happy to talk about what had happened to me. Uh, because the book is about grief and they just 
nothing was really hitting the way that I thought that it might. And so one day I just kind of, my friends had witnessed my boys saying these things to me mm-hmm. and they said, you have, you need to write about this. And my, my concern was that I would come off as vain or something ridiculous. And they said, no. So I just kind of wrote it very quickly one day because it was so true to me. It didn't take right. a long time. Right. Right. And I sent it to my agent and I said, what do you think? And she said, let's say, I know, cause she knew Dan. Uh-huh. So Dan, just for everyone who doesn't know, is the editor for the Modern Love Column? Yes, Dan Jones. Yes. And she sent it in, and then she went on maternity leave. That was probably October. And then I didn't hear, I didn't hear. I thought, oh, well, you know, it's a shot. Right. Right. And then literally the day before Thanksgiving, I woke up and had an email um, that said, sorry, I've been swamped. I'd love to talk to you about this. And I just... You know, sat in my bed, laid in my bed, and just cried. And oh, thought, well, no. he wouldn't, yeah, he wouldn't want to just talk to me to talk to me, right? <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't want to just be your friend now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a busy guy. This or maybe guy. he does, but <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, and then he was just, um, he was a delight. We spoke on the phone. Um, he was asking me logistical questions to kind of confirm the trajectory of our relationship, and then he edited it and said. You know, it's going to run the Sunday before Christmas. Oh, wow. Um, wow. It, it continues to be one of the greatest achievements. I think it's the best writing I've ever done. Well, it, I really encourage anyone who hasn't read it to read it. Because like I said, it's really, there's something so beautiful about the story. And, and what strikes me over and over is really just the way um, he transformed you in your own eyes, I think. Would that be fair to say? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. He really did. He, for so many reasons, I, I think I, well, I know, I know I got my first book deal when we were together and. Oh, you hadn't had any books published prior to that. Right. Uh, that Mm. was 2007, 2008 when I got my first book deal and we were together. Oh, wow. And he was a huge, I mean, it's not easy to be married to an artist. Who makes no money, believe me. <laughs> <laughs> he was always very, very, very uh, complimentary and encouraging. Well, he wanted you to really um, follow your passion. And that's... Yeah. yeah right? and he also- what a gift. And now, and now you've taken that with you, even though he's not physically here. Like, you'll have that forever. You'll be able to impart that to your boys. And isn't, you know, I'm always struggling. Like, there's such a balance between telling your child, okay, you have to make a living, but you also have to do something you love. Yeah. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I encouraged me also, but, you know, always wanted me to have a career to fall back on. And I certainly understand that. And it's a, that's the constant struggle of an artist, you know, what right. is itself to just pursue this. Um, so you have to have like 25 jobs. <laughs> yeah. no, so true. And being a mother, you know, that's only 85 jobs. So that's no big deal. Right. <laughs> the hardest job in the world. It really is. It really is. Can you tell us a little, you, you talk in one of your books about the history of Cumberland Island. I don't think many people know about um, that place. I, I'd love you to just detail it for us a bit. Sure. Yeah. So that's where the climax of Invisible Zero takes place. Cumberland Island is South Georgia. It's this amazing 
place, um, you can only get there by ferry. And wow. it's overrun by old buildings. It has tremendous historical context. Mm-hmm. Um, buildings that were once grand and illustrious burned to the ground. And there's all of the rubble is still there mixed in with the sand and these amazing willow trees. And then throughout the island come these wild feral horses that have lived there for centuries. Um, and it really is, my husband and I went there as a baby moon before love was born. And I was about seven months pregnant, so I probably didn't get quite the beauty of the experience. (laughs) Very hot, and I was very swollen. Right. Um, But it really was, I'll never forget sitting on the beach and the the horses just coming up or not even noticing us or not being interested in us at all. Um, Spooky in the best way. And so I wanted to, I thought I would love to write about this one. And so that's what I did. Yeah, it's it sounds like a place that I would certainly love to visit. Yeah, I, I like to yeah. I like to see uninhabited places and really just oh, take yeah. them in, right? Yeah, and that's where um, actually John F. Kennedy they got married. That tiny church. Oh, I don't know if you wow. remember those pictures? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, I There's didn't a, know that. Yeah, there's a tiny Baptist church on that island, wow. and yeah. Very cool. Very yeah. So I want to switch gears for just a brief moment into something a a bit more frivolous than we've been discussing. So I saw some pictures of you, and I know that you once had very short hair. And you know, I'm the curly girly um, founder, so I'm all about hair and empowering our our children and ourselves uh, via our hair, which is such an important feature of ours. So I want to know, like, did what was the impetus to cut your hair? What did it feel like to have short hair as a woman? Tell us. So I probably every six years, I chop it all off. Um, I was raised, my mother uh, continues to be a beautiful woman, but she was a no frills, short hair always um, since I knew her as a mother. Uh, Interestingly, not curly. Um, Mm -hmm. I get my curls from my dad's side. Ah. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. So I knew that, and my mother and I look alike. I knew that I could probably pull it off. Right, you um, have to pull it off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, in college, that was the first time I did it. Um, it was my senior year of college, and I remember just feeling like a badass. Um, really? Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, there's no to be able to pull off that haircut. People think you're so much cooler than you actually. <laughs> then you're really right. Well, because well, I don't think most people can. I mean, you know, in the army, the quickest way to shorn you of your identity is to chop your hair off. So, <laughs> I mean, I'm gonna have to agree with you on that. I think that it does require a certain structure, um, and it also it gave me. You know, in college, I had been pretty wrapped up in boys and goofiness. And right. when I cut all of my hair off, it kind of redirected me a little bit. Wow. Um, and, interesting. Yeah, and it gave me confidence um, because I didn't look like everybody else. Right. And that was a good thing. And um, then you couldn't hide. There's nowhere to hide if you don't have hair. <laughs> nowhere to hide. Right. And... It's it, and so yeah. Around every six years, I do the same thing. I just chop okay. it all off again, and then go through the horrendous grow out, which takes forever. <laughs> um, but I, I, I love it. I mean, it's 
to do nothing to it when you leave the house because I mine's super short when I'm short like there's right. no styling there's nothing I saw that yeah yeah amazing and you looked great I have to say you really pulled it off very chic yeah thank you so much I but then you know you start to miss your hair you start yeah. to miss the whole <laughs> you know the extravagance the products it can be fun well you know what it is it's like you when you have a head of hair you look or can look different every day, depending on what's going on with your hair, <laughs> right? And when your hair is short, you know, that's I, I, I have a whole new respect for the bald man because yeah. they just roll out of bed. This is how they look all day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's nice, but it's also, it's something you'll miss if you can get it back. And as a woman, you can. So. Yeah, hair always grows back. That's why I make right. so much fun of my friends who are, afraid to get like a trim it's so ridiculous <laughs> you know? like, it's just coming back right. i promise <laughs> and, and so tell us what is the most um maybe comforting um either individual or advice that you were given during the months following your husband's death i didn't get a ton of great advice oh really oh dear <laughs> yeah. what a, a lot of people have been through it did you did you belong to a support group or anything i tried I went to one and it ended up that I was teaching the night that they met so I couldn't do that mm -hmm. I did seek out therapy and for a long time just cried you right. know, I really didn't know what to say right. um I you know what was most helpful for me actually was a, so my husband had been a psychologist and one of his colleagues was a child psychologist. So I went to her to talk about how to speak to my boys about it. Right. And that was actually the most helpful. Um, I don't know why, maybe because I being proactive and inadvertently it helped. It was helping me with my own grief. I think probably the most, the most true thing someone ever said to me, my friend Dana's told me, um, in grief, the levels have levels. And that's exactly ah. right. Um, that was how I found it. I did not have those five steps, you know, that people think you're going to have. I, it didn't go like that to me. Oh. Um, and so that rang especially true. Um, and then just to surrender to the waves, you know, they keep right. coming. They're not going to stop. You're going to be driving in your car somewhere and have to pull over the side of the road and just sob. You're going to cry in front of your kids. And I, I was a big proponent, continue to be, uh, of showing my kids my emotions and being sad in front of them. I, I remember reading something that, you know, Angelina Jolie had said something like, I only cry in the shower. Yes. So I don't want my children. So I said, that's just idiotic. I mean, <laughs> what? You know, you got to show there's nothing wrong with the emotion. Right. Well, isn't it it's so important to teach them that, as, you know, as as children, as boys, for, for sure, that they can express what they feel. They shouldn't be afraid of it because yeah. it always your emotions are always going to come back and haunt you. So you, it's so much better to deal with them head on. Yes. Oh. And I think. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. You know what? It's power. I think there's such a, a mistake in society that when one is crying, when one is feeling grief or, or sad that they're like, okay, they're not together with their emotions. Actually, they are completely together because they're expressing how they feel. And what it does is it sets up the children to know that mom or dad isn't this like 
infallible entity where they make no mistakes, they have no emotion, they just go through it. It allows people to say, hey, being human is powerful. Oh, yeah. And I think, too, it's important to show my boys that this is hard. This is not a walk in the park. Right. And I'm sure they feel it as well. So it's something you want to share with them. It's not easy for them. Yeah. And we're all allowed to say that. And we're all allowed to say how, you know, talk about how unfair this was. Of course, it's unfair. Right. It sucks. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Do they come home with a lot of like questions from school? Like, what? why don't I have a daddy? Everyone else has a daddy. I think that, um, not, yes, they definitely said that. And it's, you know, it's so, it's been so interesting. My little guy, you know, he had just turned two. Right. And I, again, kind of naively thought we'd gone through the initial stages of grief, all three of us. And, you know, the other day, his preschool teacher told me that he was feeling sad in school and they have this kind of like safe corner. Um, could I bring in a picture of his Abba? That's the Hebrew word for father. And yeah. that's what Renan was called. And I said, yeah, of course. And so I picked out a picture of Lev with Renan and we we're walking into the school and Lev looked down at the picture and he said, why does he love me so much? Oh, wow. That is powerful. I know. And I said, well, he, he's your, he was your Abba. You know, he's your, no one will love you as much as, Right. Yeah, but loved you in that capacity. I mean, you, you, you were his world. Right. And that, yeah. So and that's he just, can feel that even though he's not here with him physically. So so that's, right, right. Right. Such a gift to be able to give that to him. Yeah. 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 I, that was a real eye opener for me just to understand that he will have truly, he will not have a visceral memory of having a father. That was a tough day for me. Yes. That is yeah. a hard one. Well, Zoe, you are really um, so strong in so many ways. I, I'm not sure you f- even think of yourself that way because you seem so unassuming, but you really are. I mean, you're, you're, you've come through this. You're probably still coming through it, right? We don't know the quarter of it, um, but you're doing it and you're trudging along every day and putting one foot in front of the other and really making a difference in this world with your books, your mothering, everything. So... I am so happy to have had this opportunity to speak to you. Your column, again, in the New York Times Modern Love Style section is a must read. Um, So whoever has not should. Um, And your books are great. Um, I'm I'm still finishing Invisible as Air. I love it. I would say I can never put it down, but you know, with children, I'm sure you know that's not true. <laughs> I can barely pick up a book because they don't let. <laughs> so, but when I can, I re- once I start, I really can't put it down. It's it's really beautiful. So thanks for coming on and for sharing. And I hope that you'll stay in touch with us as things unfold for you in other ways, because I'm sure they will. Thank us. you so much for so great, guys. Pleasure. Thank you, Zoe. Great having you. We'll have uh, Zoe's books available on our show notes so you can get them too and you won't be able to put them down as unless you have children, <laughs> as Zatara is saying. Thank you so much, Joy. What, Zoe, what a joy. Thank you guys so much. Have Thank a great you. day. Have a you great too. day. Bye for now. Bye for now.